Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We're looking at verses 14 through 23. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Before I I read it, um, in 2001, Time Magazine interviewed Woody Allen. Now, I'm 40 years old and I know, looking around this room, that many of you are much younger than me and probably don't know who Woody Allen is, but he is a famous, well-known screenwriter, former actor, director, movie producer, and the interview in 2001 had nothing to do with his, with his, his, his renown in the film industry, but had to do with the relationship that he had recently started a few years ago in marriage to his ex-girlfriend's daughter. And it was quite a scandalous relationship because this, this young woman is 34 years younger than him. Uh, they have been married um, and still married today. And it was a, a rather scandalous thing. And Alan said, look, I, I, I never was considered a father figure uh, to her. I never had a relationship with her mother in such a way that it could have been misunderstood in any way that, that I was a father type figure to her. Nonetheless, she was clearly young enough to be his daughter. And so Time Magazine interviewed him about this. And this was all that they discussed. And the interviewer, he knew that Alan was a very thoughtful person. And he had an ability to explore difficult moral topics. And so the interviewer just asked him directly. He said, you're a guy who can find moral dilemma in a broken don't walk sign. And that's how thoughtful you are. You can look at a broken don't walk sign and think there's some type of moral dilemma going on here and let me explore it. And he says, and you didn't see any moral dilemma here? Obvious question, very legitimate question. And this is kind of halfway through the interview And Alan says, I didn't find any moral dilemmas whatsoever. I didn't feel that just because she was Maya's daughter, that's his ex-girlfriend, there was any great moral dilemma. It was a fact, but not one with any great import. It wasn't like she was my daughter. The, The questioning continues. And you can tell the interviewer, he's really working to try to get Alan to speak in such a way to see, does Alan really know himself in what this relationship is like does he see it as clearly as the rest of the world seems to to see it and you get to the end and um, there's this moment of transparency and it's really kind of frightening how transparent Alan is and this is this is how it ends Woody Allen says the heart wants what it wants there's no logic to those things you meet someone and you fall in love and that's that The heart wants what it wants. It's illogical, and that's that. That's just the way it is. Now, the interviewer, I think, probably left surprised realizing just how much Alan actually knew himself and was revealing about himself. And it is kind of bone-chilling when you hear Alan's honesty and how he's able to justify this, this very scandalous relationship. Here's the thing, though. I think Jesus would agree with Alan's reason. Alan, though he probably doesn't know it, actually knows the Bible's teaching on the sinful condition of the human heart. So had Jesus been conducting the interview, Alan wouldn't have gotten the last word. Jesus would have responded, hey, hey, you're right. 
The heart wants what it wants. You're exactly right. And because of that, you've come to accept the absurdity. You've resolved that things are illogical and absurd in this relationship, and that kind of is the way it is. Regardless of where conscience, and at least the collective conscience of others that are looking upon this relationship may say, something doesn't seem right here, you've come to choose what your heart has wanted, regardless of how your mind may say, it doesn't make any sense. But I think Jesus would go on and say, the heart can actually change to want better things. It can have new desires and affections. It can have better thoughts. It can make wiser choices for things that are nobler, for things that are upright and honorable. And those are the things that we want to think about today. We want to explore from Mark chapter 7, Jesus' teaching. And I think the most, most pointed teaching from Jesus himself about the sinful condition of the human heart. And in turn, we want to turn and find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we see that only God, through His Son, can give His people new hearts, with new affections, with new desires, to make better choices, that live in such a way that honor Him. So you've already turned there. Let's read Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. If you're taking notes, I have three questions that I want us to, to ask and answer, and then I want to conclude with a few reflections on the passage. Uh, but the first question is, what is our fundamental problem? What is our fundamental problem? Next is, can religion fix our problem? Can religion fix our problem? Third, can Jesus fix our problem? Can Jesus fix our problem? So these are very simple questions. What's our problem? Can religion fix it? Or can Jesus fix it? And then I want to conclude with some reflections. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you know yourself not to be a Christian, I'm very thankful that you're here. I don't know why you may be here. I trust that maybe you're here because their life circumstances have kind of put you at the end of your rope and you're kind of reaching out, trying to find some help in some way. You may not be able to identify exactly what the problem is or, or what, your, what the, the, the hope and help is. Um, I'm thankful that you may be here on other Sundays, but you've come on a Sunday where Jesus is explaining what your fundamental problem is. And so I pray that you leave here understanding just how great your problem is and how much your need for Jesus is. 
you're today in, in your Christian, I pray that you leave just overwhelmed with great joy because of what God in Christ has done for you, that you'd see his great love and affection in giving you new hearts and that you would honor him with them. Well, let's walk through these questions. What is our fundamental problem? It is that we are spiritually defiled, that we are morally unclean. There is an impurity about us, a spiritual and moral impurity about us. There is a corruption about us, an evil so closely associated with us that we have come to be identified with it. And we can do nothing to change this about ourselves. That's our problem in, in a nutshell. And this is what Jesus means when he talks about being defiled in our passage. In verses 14 through 15, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people. This would have been filled with some people who have been following him for some time, that believe he is who he says he is, the, the Son of God. Uh, this would have been people who was just curious about his popularity, or maybe they've come to be healed or to, be, um, to have a, a, an unclean spirit exercised from them. It's just a big group of people, and Jesus teaches them about their fundamental problem in a parable saying, hear me all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, when we think of defilement and cleanliness, we think in terms of hygiene. You know, wash your hands, wear your mask, keep your distance. This keeps us clean from the virus of COVID-19. This keeps us safe. We are not defiled, so to speak. We're not corrupted. We're not infected with the virus. And so those are the terms that we often, we often think in hygienic terms when we think about defilement and cleanliness. And that's one of the things that Jesus' listeners would have thought of or Mark's readers would have thought of. But they primarily would have understood defilement to be moral and spiritual categories. That is that God looks upon mankind as morally and spiritually defiled because of the sinful evil that is within them and not from things outside of them. Jesus goes on and he explains the meaning of this parable to his disciples in verses 21 through 22. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. He mentions 13 things here. The first one, evil thoughts, is just kind of a broad category. It's just all sorts of evil, and it stems there in, within the person, and it comes in the, the mind. But then he gives six evil acts and six evil attitudes. And I'm not going to walk through the whole list. You'll find these types of lists elsewhere in the New Testament where it's walking through a list of sins. It's not intended to be exhaustive, but it, Jesus is saying these are the ones that we recognize clearly come out of the heart of man. But Jesus is saying these sins are so closely associated with us that they fundamentally characterize us. There is a moral corruption that we cannot disassociate ourselves from. We are, at the core, defiled because these evil acts, these evil attitudes, they come from inside of us. 
And so he summarizes in verse 23, saying all of these evil things, all of them, come from within, and they defile a person. There's an evil, moral, and spiritual corruption ingrained in the very fabric of our being. It is hardwired in our spiritual and moral DNA. And Jesus says all of these things, they come from the heart. And when the Bible speaks of the heart, it describes it as the core and governing center, center of who we are. When we talk about our heart, we're usually talking about our emotions. This is what we really feel deep down inside. I love that person with all my heart. It's a, it's just a, it's a phrase that kind of encapsulates just kind of everything about me is what loves the person. It's just, it's deeply rooted inside. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it is describing as the, the governing center of, of who we are. And it says that our minds and our emotions and our will, they are all united in the heart. All three of these things, they are working dependently on one another. What we think, what we feel, and what we choose, they all come from the heart. And so you see that in Woody Allen's comment that I quoted at the beginning. The heart wants what it, wa what it wants. There are desires within it. There are affections that it has. And it doesn't make any sense in my mind why it wants these things. But that is what it is, is the way to say, I've chosen this relationship because that is what it is. It's what the heart wants, and it's what the mind can't understand. And for Alan, he would say that this is, this is just the way humans are. This is the way mankind is. And Jesus would totally agree. Absolutely. This is the way it is. But he'd also say that the heart is corrupt. That what comes from it are evil thoughts, evil desires, evil choices are made. And these are the things that defile us that set us apart as unclean spiritually and morally before a holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly pure, and unclean holy God. Jesus' message is no different than we find in the rest of the Bible. And I thought about just giving you a number of passages, not to read all of them, but to write down and look at. But let me just read two to you. One of them we found in our, in our scripture reading today where Jeremiah was telling the people in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. That is a bold statement. The heart is deceitful above all things. There are a lot of things in this world. There are a lot of people that are pretty deceitful. There are a lot of circumstances that are dark and twisted. And yet you're saying that the heart in an individual person who, who by and large seems to do pretty well. They pay their taxes. They're faithful to honor their parents. They, they coach their kids' little league teams and all the rest. They're a good faithful employee or employer. Their heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? Notice there the deceitfulness, the inability to understand what the heart does. Paul in Romans chapter 1 Verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their mind was futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, the passions of their hearts, to what? To impurity, 
God gave them up to the lust in their hearts, to impurity, because that's what was there in their hearts, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Just read Romans chapter 1, you'll see that. The point is that our fundamental problem is our hearts are morally corrupt, spiritually defiled, a source of all, sort, a source of all sorts of evil that leads us to fall short of God's standard and expectations for our lives. God calls us to, to worship Him, to honor Him, to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. And because of the evil corruption within us, we do not do this, and thus we stand condemned under His judgment. And this is who we are. It's who we are by birth. The sinister thing also, as though it can get any worse, is that we want to deny that this is us. We want to somehow separate ourselves from this reality, disassociate. We want to think that the problem either isn't this bad or the problem that is this bad isn't within us. My freshman year of high school, it was about two months into to my, my freshman year, they, they called our class into the auditorium. The administrators did, the principal, and you know, it, was, it, was, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't obviously school-wide, it was just our class, and we didn't know exactly what we were going in for, and part of you think, oh, is there like a special surprise? Like, did we win an award or something? Like, what are we doing in here? And we kind of did, but it wasn't a good one. The principal stands up and he says, in all my years of being here, and he said how many years that was, and I don't remember what it was, he says, this is the worst freshman class that we've ever had. And I'm like, Okay. It can't be that bad. And um, he went on to just kind of lay out, not statistics, so to speak, but just to describe the number of detentions and even um, suspensions that had been placed in school, out-of-school suspensions, just a number of things and problems that teachers had had and clearly been reported to the administrators and just wanted to let us as a class know this is who you are. There's nothing they could do to us as a class as a whole, but... But that was the news he had to deliver. It's this bad. And at first you're just kind of shocked. Like, really? And then I, like many others, thought, well, it's not me. I can't be that bad. Look, I've gone to school with some of these kids since elementary school, and I know who you're talking about, but you can't be talking about all of us. And then you just begin to realize I'm identified with every one of them. My name, Bradford Allen Thayer, is formerly on the rolls of class of 1998, and I am part of the worst freshman class in this principal's history. It's me. I'm in the group. I'm part of the problem. And we're all in the group of mankind, and we're all part of the problem. And we're all this bad that we are corrupt, depraved, and evil to the core. People are not inherently good and then choose to do some bad things. They are inherently bad and just not as bad as they could be. Because they are made in God's image and because of His common grace that restrains the evil that's within the heart, they're just not as bad as they could be. It's like a dam and a lake. A lake that, that's backed up and full of water. The human heart is just backed up and full of water and and, and the dam that's holding it within and, and preventing it from going forth and doing all sorts of damage is God's common grace to, to mankind. That's how bad it is. And none of us want to think that this is within us, but it is. 
If you're here today and you're not a Christian, as I've already said, maybe you've come and you really do feel that you're at the end of your rope. Maybe you've been searching for meaning and you just cannot find it and you don't know what to do and it's hollow and empty and that's hard. Life is hard and I'm sorry for whatever pain that you may be going through. But I also want to tell you, it's, it's actually probably worse than you think it is. Your problem's worse than you think it is. And Jesus is giving it to you here. It's a fundamental problem. It's a personal problem. It's a corrupt heart that defiles you before a holy God. And you have no power to change. That's the first question. Let's go on to the second question. Can religion fix our problem? Can religion fix our problem? Many people will believe that there's something about themselves that needs to change. I realize that you don't hear that messaging very often. Even people that are told, you know, you're perfect in every way. There's nothing about you that needs to change. They'll have moments of honesty and transparency within themselves and say, yeah, there are some things that need to change. And people will turn to all sorts of different things. And one of the things that some will turn to is religion. Formal, organized religion. They, they, they see that, that maybe there's a, a divine power, something outside of themselves that can help them change. And so where should I turn? I should turn to religion. Now, growing up in the South, you recognize that Christianity was the dominant religion. But as, the, as even the South has changed in a large metropolitan area like this that's predominantly secular, people will still look around at the religious institutions and they'll say, ah, is the answer there? Will that fix my problem? Will religion, with its practices and traditions, fix our problem? And the answer is no. And you see this really from the, the wider context of Jesus' teaching here. So chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, through the end of our passage, verse 23, we find Mark recording the longest confrontation that Jesus has with the religious leaders. In Mark's gospel where does Jesus have the longest confrontation, discussion with the religious leaders? It's right here in these 23 verses. And let me just read verses 1 through 13 for you. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Gorban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things 
you do. Uh, Jesus, again, we find this longest confrontation here. And in verse 1, the religious leaders had, had come and gathered around Jesus to investigate his popularity. And some of them had come all the way from Jerusalem. Jesus is like 90 to 100 miles away from Jerusalem uh, healing people. And that's how far they've come because they want to entrap him, finding is he teaching things contrary to the word of God? Is he blaspheming? And so they were dead set in finding out, finding him doing this. And they look around and they see in verses 2 through 5 that the disciples had been eating and they had not washed their hands before they ate. And they didn't think, oh, that's just kind of gross. You know, no, they're looking at this and saying this is a real problem because there's a tradition handed down by the elders that says you have to wash before you eat. And thus, why are they not obeying the tradition? They question not the disciples about it, but they question Jesus about it. Because whatever the disciples are doing, well, that's going to reflect on Jesus. And Jesus is the one that we're really after. And so they ask him, why do your disciples not walk that is not live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. Now, let, let me take just a moment and explain what is meant here by this phrase, the tradition of the elders. By Jesus' time, Jewish leaders had established written traditions, and they had been handed down orally in an effort to apply the Old Testament law, the Torah. You can think of it a bit of a kind of how-to manual, practical guide to living some of these things out. And the reason being is because life had changed. Uh, after the exile, Jews had been dispersed and they were living among Gentiles and they were living in the Roman Empire where Gentiles are the predominant, um, the predominant people. And so it wasn't always clear in this setting and in this life what it looked like to obey Moses' law. And so these traditions were a very practical guide. And you can take, for example, what we find here are the dietary laws. So God had told the people in Leviticus chapter 11 not to eat certain foods. Don't eat them. In not eating them, it's going to set you apart from the other nations. It's going to be a public witness and testimony that you are my people and that I have set you apart. So don't eat these foods. But what do you do in this context now in Jesus' time if you're out in the marketplace? where Gentiles um, shop, where their meats and their food is there, and you touch up against it, or your food is, may have cross-contaminated with their food. What do you do with your, 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 your vessel, your pot, and you've come home and, and it's touched some of the restricted food that you're not supposed to do? Well, there's tradition. You, you wash your hands. You, you wash everything lest you become defiled before the Lord because you have touched something or your vessel has touched something that was, it was not supposed to touch. Well, Jesus' disciples didn't do this. They didn't wash their hands. And the religious leaders, they equate not obeying this tradition with not obeying God's word. It's a one-to-one -one correlation here. Break the tradition, you're breaking God's word. And they think, we've got him. We've got Jesus. He's the one to blame here. Look at his disciples. Ha-ha. And so they question him. And Jesus gives basically three responses. He first tells them in verses 6 through 7, you're hypocrites. Like Isaiah foresaw people like you who would seek to honor the Lord with their mouths, but their hearts would be so far from him. They would do everything they can to keep the commandments of, of man, but not actually worship 
the Lord himself with their hearts. Then in verses 8 through 13, he says, you've got tons of traditions. That's what he says there at the very end. And many such things you do. You've got tons of traditions. And in establishing these traditions, you're not applying the word of God. You are rejecting it. You are making it void. And let me just give you an example of this practice where you've given money to the temple and when your parents come to you at an elderly age needing help, you say, sorry, I've given it to the Lord and you think you're free from disobeying the command not to honor your father and mother because you've given it to the Lord. And so in your traditions, you're rejecting the word of God. And then in our passage, Jesus tells them, he doesn't tell the religious leaders, but he tells the people that the source of defilement does not come outside, but from within. And thus implied is that the religious traditions of washing, of cleansing themselves, of doing these external things will not address their fundamental problem. This washing will not morally or spiritually defile them because the problem is not outside of them. In verses 14 through 15, Jesus no longer addresses the religious leaders. And I find this fascinating that when he actually wants to get quite literally to the heart of the problem with the religious leaders, he doesn't talk to them anymore. He turns and he tells the crowd, here's the problem. He addresses them in a parable. He says, hear me and understand. So he's drawing their attention away from the religious leaders and drawing it to himself now Jesus, like elsewhere, he teaches the crowd in a parable, and then he doesn't explain it. You can read Mark chapter 4 to understand why. I've got a sermon from, uh, I think it's Matthew 13, where Jesus explains this, if you want to understand why Jesus teaches them in parables. But this much they would have understood from the conversation that moral defilement is not something outside of them. It's within them. Now, many today would just disagree with Jesus. They'd say, it's not within me. They would consent that, yes, I've done some things that I shouldn't have done, but the cause is always outside of me. It's my circumstances. Look, if you just understood my job, pride and envy, they just drive the work ethic in my firm. It's just, if I'm going to keep up, I just, it's, some of that's got to be there. They'd say, it's my relationships. I don't know why I've chosen myself, chosen the friends that I have, but for some reason I've just surrounded myself with these toxic relationships. Sexual immorality, you just say, look, it's everywhere. Just look around. You see it all around you. Everyone's doing it. Like, what really, what's the big deal? We're both fine with this. It's generally accepted. So what's the problem here? We could go on and on. It's, it's my upbringing and... And I don't want to discount that these things are real and that they're real occasions of struggle, that there are real occasions for temptations, and that they don't affect the person for who they are today. So I don't downplay the reality of these things. But Jesus says the fundamental problem is not those things. It's not outside of you. And then he turns to his disciples and he explains to them the parable. And he explains in verses 18 through 19, the first half, saying that it's not outside of a person. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Now a few things are happening here. Jesus is implying that the dietary laws are now fulfilled in his coming. So Jesus 
not these laws are going to set people apart as clean. And that's become clear. So he is implying that, and lest there's any confusion, Mark has a little parenthetical sentence there at the end of verse 19 to make that really clear. And he had to do that because he is writing predominantly to Gentile Christians. So you have that parenthetical statement, then you've got that really long section in the first seven verses, so as to explain some of these things to his Gentile readers that they wouldn't naturally have understood. Yet they recognize that there's a lot of debate in the early church about food laws. Should we eat? Should we not eat? And so Jesus, implying this, Mark makes it very clear to his readers that Jesus is the one that sets people apart as clean, not these dietary laws. But lastly and more importantly, he says the food doesn't defile the person because it doesn't touch their heart. The source of evil does not come from outside. And he goes on to explain that in the following verses. And here's the implication of all this. If the problem is inside of us, then there are no external religious practices, religious traditions that the people could keep, that we could keep, that we could follow that are going to fix the problem. We can't change ourselves by doing these things. Even in the Old Testament, God told his people that the problem was an uncircumcised and hard heart. The law was never intended to change their heart. The law was always there as a way to mark them aside and to help them realize just how bad they are and how in desperate need of him they are, of the sacrifices to find forgiveness and ultimately to to have someone come and to give them a new heart. And yet the people routinely over and over resorted back to trying to keep the law, to their religious practicing, thinking this is keeping me pure and clean before a holy God. And it never was intended to do that. Religion has no power, quite literally, to get to the heart of the problem. And so again, to, to my non-Christian friend that's here we're thankful that you are here and that you're coming to a church that really does seek to explain, as I've sought to do, and I don't know if you've ever sat through a, a sermon kind of like this, that's walking through verse by verse, but seeks to explain God's intended meaning from his word, to apply it to you, to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is central to our lives. This is a good place to begin. It's a good place to come because you're hearing truth and you're surrounded by people that love it and have been changed by it. But don't think that just coming and trying to do some of these religious things, participating in this religious service, and leaving here saying, I I'm going to improve this area of my life, that it's actually going to fix your problem. It's not. And it won't. It never intended to. You have to believe that only God and the gospel can change you. I'll say more about that in just a second. My Christian brothers and sisters, Jesus said, Hear me and understand. Do you remember the moment in your life where you came to understand the hard truth that I've been seeking to explain here? That moment where you realize, whoa, I really am this bad. That I actually am part of the problem. That I'm not as good as I think I am. That there is evil and corruption and all sorts of defiling things deep within me and have come out of me. Do you remember when God awakened you and helped you to see that truth about yourself? Praise God for that. 
because he helped you come to the end of yourself and see your desperate need for him. And in his grace, he called you to himself. So praise God for the understanding you have of just how wicked and evil the human heart really is. Third question, can Jesus fix our problem? Can Jesus fix our problem? The solution to our problem is that we need to be changed. We need to be changed at the very core of our being, at the very center of our person. All of these things come out of us at some point. As Dustin prayed earlier, we may have not have committed adultery or murder, but if we have lusted or if we have, become, have been angry, we are adulterers and murderers of the heart, as Jesus says. We don't need improvement. We need to be fundamentally changed. And Jesus Christ does that. If, if you just read through Mark's gospel, by the time you get here, and definitely by the time you, you get to the end of chapter 7, it would have been really, really clear to Mark's readers that the unclean and the defiled people of Jesus' day, they come to Jesus and they are made clean over and over and over again. In Mark chapter 1, Verses 40 through 41, there's a leper. And Jesus reaches out and he touches the leper. According to the Old Testament law, that is something you do not do. You do that, you need to be removed from the people. You are unclean. Jesus touches him and he is healed. He is made clean. In chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, Jesus, he dines with tax collectors and sinners. This is a, this is a rough group of people. And Jews were not supposed to hang out with these people because they would have been defiled and made unclean. And when questioned about it, Jesus says, look, I've not come to call the healthy, but I've come to call the sick. They are the ones that need a physician. I've come to make these spiritually sick people well, to make them clean. In chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, there's a woman with discharge of blood and for years she has lived this way and she has gone from doctor to doctor one opinion after another opinion and nothing is helping her and she reaches out and she touches Jesus's garment and she is immediately healed he's not made unclean she's made clean in Mark chapter 5 verse 41 the, there's a religious leader he comes begging Jesus my, my daughter's dying she's on her deathbed can you please come heal her can you please make her well by the time he gets there, she's dead. What do you do? You do not touch a dead, dead corpse. There's a certain process that you have to go through. And Jesus reaches down and touches her. She's brought back to life. She's made alive. And then at the, the next section after our verse, Jesus goes and he has this very personal contact with a, a Gentile woman. And her daughter is possessed by a demon. And he goes and he touches her and she's exercised of this demon. He's not supposed to have this type of interaction with Gentile women. And yet over and over you see in Mark's gospel that these people are made clean. And all of these people, Jews were not supposed to associate with them. They were not supposed to touch them, not supposed to associate with them. In so doing, they would have been defiled. They would have been made unclean. They were to be set apart as unholy. And yet Jesus comes and he touches all of them, associates with them, and not once is he made unclean. They are made clean. They are set apart as holy. They are healed. They are completely changed, every one of them. And so what you see Mark doing is saying, 
you get to the end of this section, and Jesus doesn't tell you what the hope is, but the readers would have understand, I've got to go to Jesus. If, if my problem is this bad, and it is within me, and I am defiled, where do I go to be made clean? Can I be like the leper? Can I be like the woman with the discharge of blood? Can I be like the, the person that had the demonic spirit? Can I be like the dead woman? Can I go to him and be changed like all these other people have been changed? And you say, absolutely. I can only go to Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes me clean, that changes me. He changes people at the core of their being. I want to conclude with five reflections in light of this truth. Five reflections in light of the truth that Jesus changes people. First, Jesus' heart, its desire is to change people. He wants to change people. He wants to change you. He has a heart that beats to change people. He has a mission and a desire. He is interceding with the Father for His people now that they might continue to be changed and be made more like Him. When Jesus heals someone, it's often noted He is moved with compassion. It says of the leper that He was moved with pity. He looked upon the leper and realized no one else could help Him, but I can help Him. I want to help Him. Let me make Him clean. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which a brother recommended to me a number of weeks ago, and I devoured, and I've been giving it out, and I think a number of you have read it. It is a wonderful book. It's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. I don't know if it's on the book stall. You should ask someone that works here. I just don't know. But Dane Ortland, he meditated on how Jesus describes himself gentle and lowly in heart from Matthew 11. And it's the only place in the gospel where Jesus describes who he is in his heart, gentle and lowly. And this is what Ortland said, gentle, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not pointed finger, but open arms lowly. That is, that he is accessible for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness. No one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus, he has no compassion for the self-righteous. Not once does he say he's compassionate towards the scribes and the Pharisees, but he is compassionate. He is full of love and tenderness to those of us in our helpless state that recognize we need him. The goal of his earthly ministry was to accomplish his Father's will and to do so with the heart of perfect love and tenderness towards people that come to him and says, I'm unclean. Make me clean. I need you. Second, change happens through spiritual rebirth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Change happens through spiritual rebirth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible describes God changing people at the core of their being as being born again, born of the Spirit, given new birth, made alive, new creations, new creatures, brought forth from death to life. And 
and other like phrases that we find. And we know that this is a supernatural work that God does. He is the one that imparts spiritual life to dead sinners. He is the one that, that regenerates the hearts and gives us new desires and affections and thoughts and choices that honor Him. It's the act of converting us from life to death. Ezekiel prophesied that a day would come when he said, God will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That day has come in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in his ascension and in the giving of the Holy Spirit comes into his people and gives us new hearts. And it is all the work of God. It is not us. And we go to Jesus Christ and that's where that work is done. And so if you're looking for change anywhere else, you will not find it apart from the miraculous work of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ giving you new life, giving you a new heart. Next, you must go to Jesus by faith. The third reflection is that you must go to Jesus by faith. Being born again is a supernatural work of God, but the Bible commands us. It tells us we have to go to Christ. We have to trust Him completely. You see, the people that are healed in Mark's gospel, they are healed by faith. It's your faith, woman, that made you well. Who touched me? She did. It is your faith that has made you well. Tells the leper, it's your faith. And then he says, don't go and tell anyone. And he goes and he tells everyone. By faith. It's saying that only Jesus can cleanse me and change me. It's trusting him alone in his death on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for all the evil thoughts and all the evil actions that we've done against him and against others. Recognize that we should bear that wrath, that we should bear up under that judgment, that the sinless one died for the many sinful, that the one that was perfectly pure and undefiled and lowly and gentle heart died, died for those that are wicked in heart. Faith is saying that we recognize that God raised him from the dead after three days to prove that he is who he says he is, the Son of God that's come to give eternal life and to give new life, and we trust in him alone in that resurrection. It's recognizing, believing that God gives his spirit to his people to continue to sanctify them in their heart and set them apart as holy for the Lord's. Friends, faith is trusting that Jesus alone can change you. Fourth, I just got two more. Fourth, we should be moved with compassion toward the hurting and broken caused by the evil heart. We should be moved with compassion. God's people should be moved with compassion toward the hurting and broken caused by the evil heart. These acts, these attitudes that you find listed here, just take one of them and just meditate on it. And you just realize there is a wake of damage with that. Pride, coveting sexual immorality. I mean, which one? Just pick one. Just think of all the damage that's left when that thing is leading out, when that sin is leading out. Relational carnage and emotional brokenness from these sins, a spiritual emptiness that people try to fill in acting out on these sins. And our hearts should be moved and they should be filled with compassion like Jesus moved with pity 
when we look out and we see the people in our own lives who are experiencing the hurt and brokenness caused by these sins. And we should be moved in such a way so as to go and tell them that the only hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We should faithfully proclaim that to them. And we should also be moved in compassion to show them mercy, to do good to them when given opportunity. I don't know who may be in your life who's going through that, but I encourage you to be bold with the gospel and to find very tangible ways to show them love and compassion in their hurt and in their brokenness. Fifth and lastly, Christian, your life has been changed, but you must keep your heart with all vigilance. Your life has been changed, but you must keep your heart with all vigilance. God's calls you to be born again, but He's still doing a work that we participate in as we watch our hearts and sanctify our hearts. Our lives are not the same as they used to be. Our heart wants what it heart wants, but God has changed that heart. He has allowed us and caused us to be able to love and desire and want to do and choose to do things that honor Him, that are noble, that are good and life-giving to others, and praise God for the way that He has changed us. The power of sin and evil, they are no longer master over us. And being united to Christ, we're not united to sin. The, the evil that once was so close to us that we became identified with us, that's not true anymore because we are identified with Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. And yet we must keep our hearts with all vigilance. We must watch them closely. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Life springs forth from the heart, but you have to watch the heart. Talk to others this afternoon about what that looks like. It's not easy to keep the heart. It's hard work, but it's possible. It's a work that can be done. God will preserve it through His Word. So don't be discouraged in your fight with sin, in the hard work of watching your heart. God has changed you, and by His grace, He will cause you to be vigilant to watch over it. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you. And as we sang, we know that we are cleansed only by the blood of Jesus Christ. We know that our righteousness is only found in Him. We know that we are set apart as holy because of what He has done. And we give you much praise. We feel how our praise often falls short. We know how our affections are, and our hearts are not as warmed to that truth as they ought to be. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to love you and to love others more. Father, help us to keep our hearts. By your Spirit and through your Word, help us to keep our hearts vigilantly to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.